Hello. Hello. Hey. I'm Hello. Sima. I'm Elio here. Nice to meet Hello. you. Hello. I'm so <laughs> to meet you. And this is my co-host, Sophie. I don't know if you follow her on TikTok. It's Dark Room Varmint. She's no. a photographer. I, I think we're about to follow I will, each other. I will follow her. Yes. Uh, can you see me? No, no but I can not hear yet, you. But we can hear you. Just, just bear with me for a moment. I'm trying no to get this to work. We can wait. We're cool. It's early here. We've, we've got all the time. And just, dark. The, yeah. we, were just, we were like, what, when does it actually get lighter? <laughs> That's just so weird. I'm trying to. Just you want to log to... out and log in? Why didn't you go I'll... go leave and come back? Yeah. I, oh. Ah, oh, hooray! Hooray! Hello. Yay. Success. Nice to meet you in person. Yes. Nice to meet you in person as well. I've been following you so yeah. carefully these last couple of oh, years. The last couple yeah. of years. This last year, it's been really, yeah, it's yeah. really fun Same. to be able to speak with you. <laughs> All right, we're joined by Elio. Uh, who I'm also known on TikTok by Jupiter Bao. How did you come up with that handle? I've always wondered. So basically, it's my favorite Roman temple. Oh. There is a temple in uh, Lebanon in Baalbek, which is a syncretic deity, which is Baal, which is the god of the sun with Jupiter. So, And it's one of the most beautiful in Roman temples that I've ever, ever had the chance to study. And that's why that's where I took my name from. Because that's awesome. Well, yeah. we're excited to talk to you today. <laughs> yes, welcome to. Well, the thank Art you very Lost much podcast. for having me over. <laughs> yeah, thank you very yeah. much for having me over. So I was saying to Sophie yesterday by text, I love. So I I generally love your content about like race and colonialism, but I also love that you you are artists. You make T-shirts. You make you know. So yeah. tell us a little about you. So basically, I. Uh, I have a weird career path because I started off as an archaeologist, then I became oh, a cool. compliant, then I complained and became a compliance manager in um, investment banking, <laughs> and then afterwards, and then afterwards, uh, after twelve years of pain, I decided to become an artist. I mean, I at this moment I work as a project manager for this um, startup that my husband is starting which is like a sustainable food business that is community-based and part-time i'm an artist i'm a digital artist and at this moment i'm I'm, I'm exploring art that you can wear t-shirts um bomber jackets stuff like that but i'm going to make the move to actually sell unique pieces you know like uh not doing just things digitally, but also afterwards printing them and gilding them, lacquering them and so on and so forth, just to, to have something a bit more three-dimensional. So it's been a bit of a ride, but I'm enjoying it a lot because <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm drawing up on all of the influences that I gathered throughout my life, especially through archaeology, because I specialized in uh, classical antiquity. And oh, you did? <laughs> where yeah. <laughs> where did you just went like this. Where did you do your, like, where did you do your fieldwork largely? Uh, in Portugal, Spain. Uh, I studied in Portugal. Most I studied in Portugal. Mostly I did a year um, of Egyptology and classical studies in Barcelona as well, which was really, really, really fascinating. And I had the good fortune of doing archaeological digs, not only um, around the coast of Portugal, but also in Spain. And I worked in one of the 
biggest archaeological sites in Portugal. It's a city called Canimbriga that has kind yeah. of pre. Did you? Yeah. Yes. God, I, I was, that I, yeah. That, that, uh, this is one of the weird things. So um, I was at the Cleveland Museum of Art for about 20, some, like almost 20 years. And um, they actually have some historic uh, Spanish and Iberian works. Because, yeah, be just because like it's a huge, it's one of the biggest collections in the States. So, um, and I was actually just thinking I would do some works because somebody asked me a question which or said something to me which I found really fascinating. Um, it reminds me of, so my, so my story is that my parents, I'm, I was an art historian, pretty much straight, went, wanted to be at work in museums, wanted to work at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is new where I grew up. And then I went to grad school. I'm an art historian. And, you know, we're like, like next to archaeologists. <laughs> we yes. use your work, but we don't like, we don't get dirty. We keep clean. And, um, but then I worked there for like 20, maybe 23 years, 24 years in museums. And it's so hellish. I quit and almost like half the people I know, like your head of the head of the Welsh head of digital for Welsh museums quit and went to like work in, he's an amazing human being. I knew a lot of, you know, British museum people yeah. and they've all quit. Everyone was like out this year and we all went to tech. So this is how I started doing the TikTok because I wanted to talk about art. But just recently I've been, I, what I've found is um, that people, like I'm astonished because in museums and in the arts and maybe also in archeology, span we are so siloed. We think that people know things that they don't. And this is where Iberian Peninsula comes in because um, somebody was like, well, like they were trying to figure out who the first, they were like, no, who are the first people there? But like they were some, somehow completely confused like it was the Romans. And I was like, no, it was not yeah. the Romans, right? Like <laughs> you're like, no, it didn't, like you think that like they were not, like it was just empty and then the Romans showed up. Um, it's fascinating. It's, it's really fascinating because yeah, it's perpetuated by classical literature. Because I think right. uh, when the Iberian Peninsula was conquered by the Romans, they thought that one of the, the river Minho, which is in the north of Portugal, was actually the divide between um, the world and the underworld. <laughs> so because it was so northwards. And, but yeah, I mean, we had a Carthaginian and Phoenician occupation. We had, you know, like the Bronze Age populations, which like our Bronze Age population and Iron Age populations also kind of, they were kind of mythified by the fascist regimes mm. that we had. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. They created this Lusitanian people Right. Which is kind of, it, it's a bit of a construct because you don't, we don't know their language. We kind of guess at their cultures. You know, it's a bit of a Celtification of all of yes. the populations that exist. Yes. I mean, don't get me started when people started start speaking to, to me about Celts. I just go with it like, oh, like it's Cel Celts is like Vikings, right? People hold on to it. Oh no 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 no! Like they want to believe that they're like. No, I know, but what I'm saying is yeah. it's like culturally the same oh, kind yeah. of people who are into cult being Celtic yes. are yes. the people who want to be Vikings. Yeah, yeah. it's like the Venn diagram is a circle. They might be, they might be different circle. folk, but yeah. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it just, it just pisses me off so much because it's like, it's, it's not even, it's not even a Celtic word. It's Greek, <laughs> you know, like and people like to pretend or like to believe that there is this unified culture that existed from Bulgaria to Ireland for like 2000 years, speaking the same language, having the same gods. It's like, 
that just stretches imagination. But it, it became a sort of a cultural identity. So when you speak about Celts, you have to like take a lot of care because there are people who identify as descendants of Vercingetorix and something like that. And I'm like, obviously not. <laughs> you know, like there is, it, it's, it's really fascinating, like how people pick on antiquity and transform it into whatever they want it to be. How it always ends up being a mirror of their emotions, their desires, and it's like, and you can see that you, you can see that on any like, for instance, one of the things that. Sorry, I'm just going on tangents. But no, no, we love it. We love it. That's what you're here for. <laughs> but it's it's just because. Um, one of my essays uh, when I was, because I came to the UK and to study cultural heritage studies at the UCL, and mm-hmm. one, one of the essays that I enjoyed doing the most was uh, speaking a bit about the Black Athena and the representation mm-hmm. of Egypt in the, the representation of Egypt in the Western world and uh, the, the kerfuffle between uh, the classicists and, and the, the Egyptologists that uh, are Africanists when it comes to the idea of how um, Egypt is represented in history. And that took me to this interesting rabbit hole of uh, represented representation of Egypt in film. So I went through the history in Hollywood of the representation of Egypt in film and it is fascinating how it always reflects the modern times of the countries that are trying to represent Egypt. For instance, you have um, uh, one of my favorite films, which is, uh, it's based on that um, work, uh, Sinoe the Physician, which is the Middle Egyptian yeah. novel. Yeah. And I, now I'm having a blank. It's this, it's, it's a, oh God, it's a film about, um, it's a film from uh, the 1950s with Adam Purdom, who, in which he plays a doctor, Sinue, the physician, and he's a doctor of, to Akhenaten. And they make a bridge between uh, Akhenaten and um, Christianity. Yeah, and of course. All of- <laughs> exactly and all of the egyptians are represented as white and you know like there's this sanitized white version of egypt but then you fast forward to the mummy returns and what you see is what it it's a reflection of the america that um produced that film in which you have some diversity but the diverse the diversity is very scaled you have at the lower level the guards and the servants that are all really dark skinned and the there is a hierarchy of lightness that goes up to the pharaoh and Egyptians all of a sudden live in these gigantic metropolitan cities with golden towers everywhere and they are obsessed with weapons like all of they are all Egyptian ninjas, and they're all. And I'm just, and I always find it really fascinating coming back to the way that we appropriate, not to appropriate, that we interpret the legacy of antiquity, how we just always mirror our desires there. Like, it's so we, true. It's so true. I read an article once about, I used to love that TV show Rome that was on HBO. And mm. I always think about it because they said we never show the past in any way that doesn't reflect us. Yes. And it was just like it was like a, just a regular old review. I don't know whoever wrote it, but I think about it all the time um, because it is it's always about us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 
<laughs> when, for instance, remember when Gladiator came out? When Gladiator came out and the way that they represented Rome, Rome was Washington. And I remember reading, uh, and I remember reading um, Stephen Saylor, which is, he's one of my favorite kind of writers of uh, historical fiction. He has this series called Roma Subrosa about a, which is a really clever, uh, <laughs> I find it a really clever concept. He created a character who is this investigator um, who works for Cicero, and he bases bases all of these books on famous cases by Cicero. And I remember seeing an interview uh, from him in which he was saying that people have a lot of difficulty imagining Rome as it was because everyone uh, imagines Rome as it was imagined by racist, enlightenment, uh, 19th century German philosophers, which is kind of completely stripped white. Everything is made of marble. Everything is kind of... Alma to them a version, but with less color of Rome. And no one imagines that it's like Mexico City. Like Rome was closer to Mexico City than it would be to any of the neoclassical capitals that we have nowadays. It was just such a vibrant place filled with color and people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but it, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say that it makes me think. You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how our brains can't really ever strip us from colonialism. Like many, mm -hmm. many years ago, I mm -hmm. before the, somebody did that British Museum AR app where you could like see them in situ where they should be, like taking them out of the British Museum. I had done mm -hmm. a paper for a conference about, uh, for a, a museum conference about how like you can only, you're even by saying decolonizing, you're basically in part of the colonial project. You can never leave it. Um, and to, de de to deny it only increases its power. And like, you're talking about Rome and like how we can't picture Rome. And I think, you know what? Like my, our human failing is that we believe we can picture things we can't. Uh, right? I mean, I, yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's why I feel like my journey into TikTok was really interesting because I like interesting for me, not for anyone else, but it was interesting because I started off like doing reviews of books and then I, little by little TikTok became this massive black hole in which I pour all of my thoughts that don't usually go anywhere. And mm -hmm. um, so, and one of the things that I learned through like watching your TikToks and watching the, the, the information that is available from a lot of very interesting, interested people is that we, like, I am not the, I'm not the change. I am not the change. I am here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not the main actor in this play. I'm here to, the, like, give information to other people to be able to be the main actors mm -hmm. on this. Because I'm mm -hmm. such a product. I think we're all such a product of mm -hmm. this, of our age as well. Because, yeah, you know, like, absolutely. Yeah, we grew up, like, I grew up believing in meritocracy. Like, I grew up believing in gradual change. You know, like, yep. you must do a lot of fuss. You must do, do, you have to do everything correctly to put yourself in a position in which you can increase just an inch forward. So, and I, I think, like, I think exactly like you, we cannot live, leave our past behind. But there is a difference between uh, knowing that you can't, leave your uh, I mean 
sorry, there is a difference between understanding that you're not going to change anything, you know, like significantly for yourself and, you know, like continuing the work of making sure that we make it very clear that things need to change and that history needs to be rectified. Right, right, exactly. I was in a dinner party with this guy the other day and it was just, it was try, <laughs> you know, like um, very nice person, but he was like cisgender white male, heterosexual upper class British and, you know, like started with woke and went downwards. It's like the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very, very privileged. And he was just saying, yeah, but, you know, why do you have to, to dwell on the past? And I was like, no one's asking you to dwell on the past. We're just asking you to acknowledge it. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, like, things can change. And I was like, we're not, like, we know perfectly well that we cannot change the past. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. We want you to just acknowledge that we are where we are because of decisions that our forefathers did, and we all benefit of, you know, like I'm a net benefiter of colonialism. Like I live in London, which is literally built with blood, <laughs> with the yeah. blood of the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> Hi, I'm from Australia. We are the British Empire right yeah, here. Look really, at really. Exactly. <laughs> we got exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's like, it's just the acknowledgement, you know, it's like, but why do you need it? It's like, because we need to come from, we need to understand, we all of us need to understand mm-hmm. And to make sure that the lies that were perpetrated and that drove us to the place in which we are at this moment don't continue. Like, if there's any achievement that we can pass on to people afterwards, it's that. It's that at least they have a solid base to understand their failings Mm -hmm. and understand that sometimes they don't succeed. Not because they're not good enough, but because the system has been built against them. And, you know, like... Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. But people don't, like... Sophie and I often talk about how, like... um, Like, we we usually have a segment about our, like, TikTok um, drama or failures (laughs) or problems. (laughs) Um, And one of the ones I was thinking about is some guy was upset because I had said... And it was such a good, you know, like, not even that big an issue. But I was talking about embroidery from Mexico made by the Otomi people that in America is called Otomi instead of Otomi embroidery. And it become it became really popular because a lot of like, you know, hip Americans really went down to Mexico and buy it. And now it's like a global thing. And I had just said whiteness. And he said, yeah, white people are bad. And I did a video, which I'm thinking about like redoing because I didn't say it as I wanted to. Um, but I think that when you say like, I don't want you to have the wiggle room because what you're trying to say is white people aren't all bad, right? It's like the same as not all men to me. Yeah. And it's the same, like, it's just, it's it's dumb. And I'd much rather you say, like, here, we are all products of the British Empire. Like, let's put actors, like, let's say who did these things. Because, exactly. like, for me, we were, I was having a different conversation with my brother the other day at the holidays, and we were talking about how I switched over to tech. And he was saying, and our, and our, one of our other uh, cousin sisters is in, was in tech for a long time. And he was, I was saying that I and the arts had never been with a lot of Asians. And now I'm with a lot of Asians, but I see how casteism is prevalent 
like the recruiters who called me were all, I didn't realize it at the time because a lot of the Indians who are uh, Indian Americans, unlike um, like South Asians who are in Britain, a lot of them came after with a degree and usually basically upper mm-hmm. middle class. So we always said my family had like a very lateral move around the world. And um, so he was, we were talking about how we as adults only realized how caste-based our experiences were. But as children, we didn't know because we were surrounded by the same sorts of people. And it's only now as an adult that I realized that I got this privilege of this job, people calling me because of my name. You know, like that. And he and he said, yeah, it's pretty shocking. He's in medicine. He was like, it's pretty shocking that until I was a grown up, I didn't know. And I bring that up because, you know, like there's all when you also say like one race is wrong or this is oh it's not an, it can't can't you get over it what you're also doing is excusing all these other things that happened and allowing that future to continue right like exactly. i could continue to be equally classist without realizing it that guy who said white people are bad can continue to be bad because he's getting to excuse it exactly i mean i I'm Portuguese, so we invented anti-blackness. <laughs> That's our biggest contribution to the world. <laughs> and I only realized that, and I only realized that, you know, like in my 30s. Because, and I did a degree in history and archaeology. I should know this, <laughs> you know. But it's it's been really fascinating to deprogram myself because um, I was speaking with a friend the other day about community. And I'm not particularly, like, I don't have a lot of experience of living within a black community because my family was a minority in Portugal, but we were also a minority uh, in my neighborhood. And uh, there is a pipeline for um, black and brown kids uh, who excel in school, which is, and that's why I kind of understand, I don't accept them, but I understand the concept of like, I understand how we have so many front benchers in the UK that are black and brown and say the most horrendous things in the world, specifically when speaking about institutional racism and so on and so forth. There is, like, I was educated to be a right-wing black person because I was told from a very young age that I was different from all of the people around me that looked like me because I had good grades, not because you know, I had advantages, I had a family who really cared for me, who never spared money for books and so on and so forth, but because I was morally different from all of the other people. And it creates this cycle of dependency in which you kind of crave for this acceptance and you mm-hmm. accept, because, you know, like hearing that you're special is, is the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. So I was raised in this pipeline to become a person who <laughs> who would go, after afterwards say that you know like the world is equal we all have these opportunities and i remember people pointing out to me like you made the right choices therefore you got to the right place mm-hmm. the other people like you didn't make the correct choices therefore they didn't arrive in the correct place which is something that still blows my mind today because it's the way that the system has of kind of surviving mm-hmm. of Mm-hmm. Ad- adapting or adopting minorities and women in smaller numbers to their circle to create the optics that we live in a meritocracy and that everyone has access, but only those who have been completely molded 
to that kind of intellectual structure that is very western based and is very connected to the academia to 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 the academia that we praise so i just find it you know like i find all of these i, I found i find all of these um constructs that we have and how we interact really fascinating because um as he was telling you know in uh, in our text there is one of your videos that i found really fascinating that i uh, love that art installation yeah there i love it <laughs> So yeah, did you see that one? It was I retweeted it from I uh, shared it from Vernissage TV, and it's um it's Michelangelo's David that has been toppled down. No, I, oh. you know, this bloody app has been holding so much of your content from me since we started posting about getting... each other. It's so annoying. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's because I keep getting videos taken down. I had that one um... because people. I'm always. It's like every three weeks, I'm on the bad list. I'll, I'll message oh, it to you. I, I think I, that that installation was absolutely fascinating for me because, as an archaeologist, I kind of trained myself because it's a game that I play with myself, which is looking at the building and thinking, "How will this withstand the test of time? What is what is going to disappear first? Is it is it does it have any specific you know like premium materials that are going to be stripped, like bronze, like marble, like you know like are the roofs going to collapse? How how does reality deconstruct itself with time? Yeah, and. Uh, there's this there's this book, this little booklet that I really love by Italo Calvino called The Invisible Cities. And there's this city there. I used to I think, use it to teach museum studies. It's amazing. I love it. So there's I don't remember the name of the the the, the city. I don't know if it's Euphemia or Olavia, but anyway. It was the city that was the capital of an empire, and then it was destroyed. And then there was another people who, in, who invaded and created another city on top of the remains of that one. And that continued successfully throughout the, the millennia. And at the end, what they had was a city in which nothing left the city, but everything was kind of changed place. So you had the, the head of the statue of a god in the sewers, because it was kind of bolstering the structure and you had the grating of a window in a museum. And I find it interesting. I like, I like looking at the constructs that we have when it comes to the way that we socially interact, that we interact with the other, because all of this will eventually change and transform itself into something new and into new kind of ways of interacting with each other. And I, yeah, I just, I just find it fascinating. I would, I would like, but it's like finding it fascinating when you look at it from a, an outsider's perspective. Never feeling it, feeling it, and going through this is always, is always uh, difficult. I mean, despite of all of, despite of you know, like my intersections, because I'm black and I'm gay and I'm a foreigner and my parents were refugees and so on and so forth. I have like an eight card, which is male privilege, and yeah. from a class perspective, I'm sorted for now because everything changed like my parents you know like everything was fine and then there was a civil war and then nothing was fine <laughs> so nothing is very permanent but i'm just like it's really fascinating to get in touch with so many people in so many different realities on twitter because it showed me kind of for instance the plight of women in a way that i never thought i totally agree i was sophie and i talked about this all the time the window into people's experiences that are different than yours are fascinating like for me it's my favorite one of part. the ones that 
it's like the best of TikTok. One of my favorite things is, so I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, which is in between New York and Chicago and basically does not look down in Ohio. So even though we're in Ohio, we don't think of ourselves like that. We're more like Detroit because these mm. cities were built, they were urban, they were urban cities and um, they were meant to be like, basically industrial, you know, I, I was in Manchester and I feel like it's totally like, it's very similar. Hmm. And, um, and in similar to Manchester, very immigrant based. Uh, we have a, a very large, actually pretty ch a chunk of native Americans who moved in to do work in factories. What we never think about is the minority that's right behind us, basically just, we're only about, I don't know, like two hours from the Appalachian mountains and uh, which in the States is close. And um, mm. I never met, I've never in my life um, until, you know, really, I think only one person have I met who's Appalachian. Wow. And so, and she was like not, she worked, I worked with her and she was the first person. I just, nobody would identify it as because it's such a, like a negative thing to be. And so I always tell Sophie about the, some of the videos that started me thinking about really loving TikTok is hearing voices of people who are in my state. They are very close to me, who mm -hmm. I would never meet in my whole life. And here it's in really our incredible. state, we give all this money. We we have like uh, earmarked money for them because it's like a minority that gets special, like, you know, it, it, because it's like, you know, affirmative action. They've been just yeah. so basically this culture was just right. And a lot of them are Native American, they're Metis. And so, um, but so I'd have money to give to Appalachian artists and like could not find one, didn't know any, couldn't find any, couldn't figure out why. I leave the arts and I start watching TikTok and I realize why. Like it's a yeah. it's a wrecked community and they are making art, but it's not the they're not going to make it to work for museums. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, it's fascinating, you know, just to, to hear these people or Sophie and I also talk about people. I'm always asking her, how do you say things um, in either New Zealand, Maori um, or First Peoples? And I can't. And she's like, no, like, look it up. Somebody will say it for you. You got to go to the source. You got to go to the source. Because that's my source. favorite yeah. part. My favorite part is that, like, I suddenly have access to everyone's auntie and grandma and, like, all of this kind of amazing advice and kind of way of engaging with the world and life hacks. Like, life hacks from different cultures is one of my favorite parts of being on that app. Because it's just, you you come across information and kind of ways of engaging with things you already kind of might have understood, but not fully or not in a kind of expanded way and it's just it's it's an engagement that i don't think i would have ever found anywhere else you know like it just suddenly the entire world's in your pocket <laughs> yeah it's really fascinating i mean i've i've met some of the most interesting people with the most mm -hmm. interesting perspectives on mm. odd on odd subjects that i would never touch mm -hmm. and you know it, and it's mm -hmm. I, it was and i think it was a it was a means of communication that found its footing i mean it's not without its problems of course it has but it found its footing in a time in which everyone was like isolated mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it provided a, a window to other people's experiences mm -hmm. and it's but it and it it ends up reflecting so many of the of the issues that we have you know like in I terms agree. of communication as well yeah mm -hmm. but no space for nuance. <laughs> no. Like, yes and no, because there is no space for nuance because the, the, lim the, the, 
time that we have to speak is very yeah, limited. Yeah, that's what the app facilitates, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but I found a lot of interesting conversation starters that start with, yeah. like, there are people yeah. making a concerted effort to put yeah. nuance and questions into to their yes. product. I mean, and I, and I, and I find that fascinating because I, I don't remember... My my algorithm has always been very generous to me. I've never went into, I've never gone to a part of TikTok. Like I rarely receive abuse from people knock on wood. Like I receive the usual, you know, like there is a monkey emoji every once in a while. Every once in a while, I have to give a clap back more, more because I feel like being mean for five seconds than <laughs> than for any other reason. You know, like to snap at the people, but. Most of the things that I that I have received have allowed me to understand the world in a potentially different lens, but and it but the 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 effect that it has on me is that when I look at the reality in which I live and in the society in which I live, it makes it a bit more difficult to accept the things as they are at this moment. Like it's it's difficult to continue accepting the problems that we have when it comes to classism, to xenophobia, to like the casual, you start picking up the ways in which people are just uncaring, not people, that our structures are just uncaring. And although it's, amazing because it really opens your eyes but it also opens your eyes stay open when you when you leave it (laughs) yeah it's true it's true I think it's for me the classism that I'm it's it's interesting one one thing I think that's hard in the states um is that because because of the structure of how the nation is built and I think this is true about lots of westernized things um but it's certainly different from the only other places that I've lived which are Japan and India that race and economy are together. So class, class-based class issues are often race-based as well. And one thing I find fascinating is that people, when I see topics being discussed, people don't see the difference. Hmm. No, you know, I, and I, I think that's, you know, that's probably maybe because my feed is, like I very rarely get anything but Americans. Like I try to move to other people, but then I end up getting mm. like mostly Americans. But like they'll like I'll hear things this morning. I saw something where I was like, and it was some, and it's it's almost always people who are like young white women or white men. But I was like, that's not that's about class. That's not just about race or exactly. vice versa. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I I find it. I I mean, an interesting. Like I'm in an interesting intersection because I married a person who belongs to the English kind of upper classes. So it is it is really fascinating because it 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 gave me a perspective of the, the world in England that was like I had a weekend in which I went to my cousin who lives here and she lives in social housing and she took care of her parents for, you know, like the latter years of her life and she lives in zone five. And in the same weekend, I went to a wedding in Westminster Cathedral. (laughs) No, sorry, not Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Church outside of Westminster Cathedral, like in which I was wearing a morning suit and there were people taking pictures of us going in, you know, like, so like, it varies wildly. Like it's really, really, fun. but it's 
it's fascinating that when I speak with people, I often find a lot of class reductionism, like a lot of class reductionism, which is, it's, it, it annoys me profoundly because I, especially when it comes from left to center, which is like, because we can have several problems working at the same time. You know, like we can have misogyny and class-based conflicts, and we can have race-based conflicts, and they can all operate together, but they can all have completely different origins and need separate solutions to be applied at the same time from a policy perspective. Mm -hmm. Because if we just focus on one, we ended up we end up kind of ignoring, especially when it comes to race and class. If we cons if we focus only on class, I think we're dismissing a tremendously important part of history and kind of whitewashing the history of the West when it comes to race. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with me, and the same thing with misogyny, which is which is again something that I always had in the back of my mind, but potentially because I follow a lot of women of color, only now am I seeing the true range of the horrifying consequences of misogyny for women in general and women of color in particular. Like, it is insane. Like, from an institutional perspective. It's wild. I, it's wild. I gave a talk once with this person who's a museum, like, scholar named uh, Portia Moore and um, a woman named, I think it was Stephanie, I think it was Stephanie Cunningham, who was the other one who ran, who runs the, we have a consortium you have it too in the UK called BAME, and uh, like it's, what's it called? Something BAME. I can't remember. But you know, we have these like uh, sort of like professional organizations for museum people of color. And I was saying to this group of conservators, I said, I want you to understand. Like I, I'm like fairly lateral. Uh, you know, upper middle class. My parents were upper middle class. Whatever. And I'm not talking just about class, but because both of these women came from like middle class backgrounds, but. I was like, to be a black woman and to be sitting here as the keynote speaker to this conference, you should know how like it's 25,000 times harder. Yeah. And all of these conservators were like, and it's a largely white, you know, museums are white. It was a lot. Uh, I mean, like yeah. I, I did, I did, I did classical studies. I mean, I right, was right. Only, exactly. like so there was, only, there was only one of us per year. <laughs> you know, like, there was only one of us per year because it's not considered like, it's not considered. And again, I kind of, it is, yeah, it's like all of this, they just make me so angry sometimes because I know a lot of people uh, who work in Oxbridge. And every single time that we speak about diversity, the answer is we're trying. Ugh. We're yep. trying yep. really hard. And it's like, obviously you're not trying really hard because you don't have the numbers. But and you know what? Are you also trying in ways that make it structurally okay? I was saying to one of my old colleagues at a job I used to have, the head of HR once said to me, how can we not, how come nobody wants to apply for this job and um, this place in Ohio that I don't need to name, but somebody could always look up my CV. <laughs> and because and Cleveland always gets um, in, you know people to apply to their jobs at the museum. People get shot there. And her reason of the, the underlying thing is that the museum that I, she works at is in a white neighborhood, and the Cleveland Museum of Art is in a black neighborhood. 
and and I was like, and I and the Cleveland Music Bar is literally across the street from where I was born. It is where my parents work, and yes, it is. It's a university neighborhood on one side and a black neighborhood on the other side, but like perfectly safe. Like I, we go park, we go to the park, whatever. The, you know, like it's so clearly you're saying something racist, but. <laughs> problem is and this is where i was you said something earlier and i don't remember exactly what phrase you said that made me think of it the problem for most people who are racist is also they don't they don't ever have that um that ability to look past themselves and that might be because they have never seen any other way that life can be lived which i think tiktok really does do a good job of there are people Mm. sometimes that i watch and i'm like weird (laughs) The example, though, that happened in my real life, and this is where I think for a lot of people who didn't get to travel, who travel like on cruise ships, and mm-hmm. so they never see the new world. Is I was in Portugal with my best friends. We had gone like on a girls' trip, right? And so we go, but we were all we had started. We had all gone to college together, and everyone was either art historian, you know, film mm-hmm. history, architect, me, um, and so we we went through all the museums, and so we're at the National Museum, and. The, we we're somebody offers us a tour and then my so my ethnicity i'm my family's from goa hmm. so they were like oh you're portuguese and i was like i mean not really you're like i can't <laughs> and so like i mean like don't start you know like i i can't and i have to say as an american we don't hear portuguese portuguese very often we hear brazilian yeah so like even like the sounds are like weird for me so i was like oh no 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 and then uh, my other colleague is Filipino. And so they were saying to her, oh, like we were in South Asia, Southeast Asia. And she was like, I mean, kind of, yeah, but like, we're not like into it, you know? And so um, they were like, come do this tour. And we were laughing because we were like, the summary of the tour was, yay, colonialism. But this was like right before COVID. And we were, <laughs> we were like, where have we gotten to? And like, we were laughing and then we went to the carriage museum and they were, you know, like, like, look at we have black bodies and we were like you mean sort of caricature (laughs) like we couldn't fathom these kinds of experiences we're having and we were saying it's because it's not any more or less racist than our experiences in the states and a lot of our racism is like you know like white like it's covered up right it's like clearly racist like the lady that's why i told you the story at the beginning there's a racism of her Mm. we're just not used to outright like yeah i mean congratulations yeah, Portugal is a is a it's an interesting case, and for me, it's a very, very, very complicated case because I grew up with a teaching system that is still very much rooted in the structures of the fascist regime. I mean, we had when I was growing up, one of the biggest and most well known historians in Portuguese TV was Jose Hermano Saraiva, who had been an education minister under Salazar, who was a fascist dictator. So the history that we have in Portugal is a history of glory. It's the history of glory of how this little nation ended up giving, and this is a quote, giving new worlds to the world. We have stuff, we have. Um, people who say that we invented the mixed race you know like <laughs> that is that is the, yeah. the type of delusion I've that heard we that have. too and we had and and we are now starting to ask questions like like people of color if now put themselves in a position of power not position of power in a, in positions of power enough to start questioning the the way that we represent um, race and racism, the way that we represent our heroes. Because for instance, 
one of the things that really sh- it was a memory that I that I could not believe that I had, um, but I did. Like it turned out to be true. I remember looking at my book when I was in the ninth grade, and seeing the list of products that were the list of products that were collated across the Portuguese empire. And you had like a little symbol for gold and a little symbol for ivory with an elephant and a little symbol for, for, uh, for spices. And then you had a little black kind of stick figure for slave as a product. And I was like, I was speaking with a friend of mine over, over the phone and I was like, I, I remember this and I keep remembering this, but this cannot be true because they wouldn't. And she actually had all of her materials. She had all of her books from when she was in school. Like, and then she went to her, to, she went to the, her box, she picked up a book and she sent me a picture of it. So we have, and this still happens today. This is not something that only happened in the 80s. We have books that still portray people as products. And I did a video on TikTok regarding this, and the Portuguese went insane immediately. Yeah, because, you really got some, got yeah, some the, negativity. Yeah, the people, the, the Portuguese people immediately become defensive because in Portugal, we content ourselves and we are taught because it's not something that people that people do without training. We are trying to think that we are the good guys. We are trying to think that we do not have racism in Portugal because we have a vision of what racism is that is, you know, cinematic, akin to what you see in the worst excesses of the Ku Klux Klan because racism, when it's depicted, it's mostly depicted by people who are in power and who have enough power to produce films. Mm -hmm. So racism is always depicted as something extreme. And I think the same thing with misogyny, the same thing with classism. You always have this caricature that allows people to kind of feel a sense of catharsis when it's uh, confronted, usually by a cis white male, (laughs) Mm -hmm. in defense of another person. And we forget all of the rest of the microaggressions, the aggressions Mm -hmm. that, you know, our racism, our misogyny, you know, like are all of those types of, of horrible behaviors. And the answer that they gave me was, well, but this is history. Do you want to teach them a lie? And my response was, <laughs> are these, you know, slaves? We all agree that people who were enslaved were people, right? And they were like, yes. So they were people. Why are we represented them, representing them today as objects? I mean, yeah. we don't go around teaching p- children that the earth is flat when we speak about the medieval period. Why are we choosing? And it's a choice. It's a choice that is, and I, I don't think that it's, it's a consciously racist choice because, but I, I was just thinking, okay, so this illustration was, this is a book that was ordered by the state because it's distributed to all of the schools across Portugal. So someone had to write it, someone had to draw it, someone had to edit it, someone had to publish it. Then afterwards, it had to be evaluated by someone in the Ministry of Education, a whole chain of people. And I don't necessarily believe that these people are actively racist, but they all looked at this and they did not see a problem. They did not see a problem. That's Which is something that like life growing up in Australia, to be honest, like my 
entire life, I would say. I like I I'm kind of young millennial, right? And I was still a part of a generation of kids that went to school and we had a day where we celebrated Colonial Day and we dressed up as colonizers <laughs> and we went to school and we did like old timey activities. And then there's this kind of sense of self that I think a lot of white Australians kind of have about themselves where they're like, well, you know, people, my ancestors were sent over here, you know, they were, they were criminalized. They didn't have a choice. It's like, well... <laughs> But did they still engage in cultural genocide when they got here? Like... <laughs> exactly. But it, but it, I, I think did people... you hear that phrase, two wrongs don't make a right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. And it's just like trying to d- discuss the nuance of that, like even to people in person, like not even online, like just kind of and trying to articulate that, you know, the way that I talk about Australia is always going to be prioritized over a First Nations Australian person, like every single time, because it's just my idea of kind of land and how to live on land is always going to be seen as more valid because of housing and because of structures and because of this idea of a roof, Mm. which is just like, I don't know how many people kind of know this about history, but the idea that white people were kind of separated from people of color and, you know, First Nations people was that because they knew how to, like, have a fence and a roof, which is so bizarre. Um, and that's why, you know, why we should all hate landlords. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I think, I think, I think it's, it's just really, really fascinating, this kind of, because we, people who are in positions of privilege like cannot understand that first that they are in the positions of privilege because we always imagine privilege as something that we see like the Kardashians do mm-hmm. or someone who owns a jet and so on and so forth yeah. and they and we have this mythical idea of our ancestors that necessarily have to be good and that or that necessarily had to be have to be oppressed. I have a friend who is a descendant of people who worked in the mills in Manchester, and I was speaking about how the cotton industry in India was decimated. I mean, it was horrifying. There were cut hands and broken looms and a whole culture and history that disappeared up in smoke for the the the, the cotton industry to move for. The, for uh, India to become an agrarian economy and the cotton industry to move to the United States, to the United States, sorry, to the United Kingdom, where it became, you know, like where it received cotton also from slavery cotton from the United States. So it was like, and I was trying to explain that, yes, your family might have been oppressed in the scale of colonialism and like in the scale of British history, but at the same time, they also benefited from the destruction of the types of lives that were consumed either by the cotton industry in the United States or by the destruction of a whole culture in India. And you still benefited from that because all of these people kind of like the money that this generated like your family was poorly paid and exploited but they were paid Mm -hmm. and this money was used by 
the British state to build roads and schools and houses and so on and so forth that guaranteed that people were able to live better lives than their ancestors. And that created all of this system of commerce that allows us all, all who benefit from this Western structure to live a bit better. So there are no heroes, but we live in this kind of Hollywood, uh, Hollywoodized idea of history. There always has to be a villain and there always has to be a hero. And, you know, like we cannot see ourselves as people who exploit other people, which is all well and good. (laughs) Yeah, It's true. I, I've had conversations like with co-workers and stuff when I used to work in retail, like white guys, cis hetero white guys, and trying to explain to them that just because of you know, how they look, how they move through the world, they have a leg up. They like they could not see it. They're like, Well, I, I don't have a lot of money. I'm like, Well, that's not the point. The point is that like structurally you can still walk into a job interview and probably walk out with a job compared to like forty, fifty, sixty percent of other applicants. You, you just have you just have the ability and they just it's it doesn't it doesn't click well i think it goes back to like this also you know what we've been talking about are huge factors right i think for me one of the things that i always think about when i figure out if a video is working or not is am i making it understandable to people or am i like yeah. hiding some of the truth right and i think you're talking about like these we're talking about how does an individual relate to these huge factors and the guy started by saying that, you know, I, you know, I think that I have a privilege in my ethnicity and my caste, but I didn't know it. And I think that for those cis hetero white guys, it is hard to admit that, like, maybe I got a leg up because I thought I was the good one. It's me because we're in, it's back to this meritocracy. Like we think somehow our good, our work will make it better. It's not nobody, you know, it's a bootstrap kind mm-hmm. of culture. Yeah. I gotta say, as like a super white person from a super white background, my introduction into radicalism was through my own kind of experience with like adversity, right? And that was through me growing up fat. Like I, as I got older and kind of became more culturally aware of where the hatred comes from for fat people, turns out it's fearing the black body. Like who knew? It's like fearing the African body. Um, and through mm. understanding that and through instead of just kind of going, you know, oh, woe is me, I kind of I went, well, well, fuck, like, imagine living at an intersection of having a large body. And that's where I started to listen, finally. And I started to really take in the experiences. And that's why social media, I think, really helped me at this point, because I was on mm. Instagram and I was consuming an individual's perception and response to a systemic problem in a way that I had never had mm-hmm. access to before. I had never I had never understood kind of where my place was in proximity to other people in that system. And there was something about hearing the individual and kind of seeing the experience kind of across from me that just kind of it, it caused the shift that I needed to really kind of understand. <laughs> Well, holy shit, I'm really white. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really fascinating because the, 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 the structure of how social media works is pretty toxic. You know, like oh, yeah. it relies on conflicts to be able to like bring out the worst of us, to be able to, yeah, yeah to, to be able to, 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 to give, you know, to sell us things. Mm. But on the other hand, it gave us an opportunity to be able to reach out to the people and to be able to have a voice and to be able to connect beyond borders. That is 
incredible. That is just absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm, that's why I'm, I feel very conflicted about social media because mm -hmm. I know that it's a tool of radicalization. Same. But yeah. it's this, but, but this also happens. We are all yes. in completely different totally sides of the know. world. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And you're sharing yes. this conversation, which is amazing. And you can, and you know, it's funny. I was so um, I used to be in museum social media, and we have a like closed Facebook group. So I said to them, "Oh, for the new year, if anybody wants to give me, I don't want physical books, but if you gave me like an e-catalog, I would happily do a free video about your shows for the upcoming year." And so somebody said, "Well, why don't you just come to?" And I don't know. I don't remember which London institution it was. And I had to message them. I'm not in London. <laughs> And it's because I had been putting up videos of artworks that I happened to follow a lot of London galleries and London mm -hmm. museums. And I was like, I sound like an American, you know, but they were like, <laughs> of course, Americans live in London. Why can't like yeah. uh, to me? I was like, it's yeah. I'm obviously not in London. Everyone. But the idea I'm that I could masquerade. <laughs> right. She's in New York. Yeah. But um, I live in New York. But, like, everyone everyone thinks I'm in Australia. I'm like, no, there's daylight behind me. Do you, do you not understand time zones? <laughs> <Yeah. sense? laughs> like... But you're also always knitting a koala, so. Uh, that, that's because it's easy views. It works. It's really like, I, I find it interesting the way that people ident identify me because. You know, like I grew up very poor. Like, as I told you, my parents were refugees, um, but I was I was fortunate enough to live in Portugal in a time in which all of our social systems were still kind of firing up, which is something that they're creaking a bit at this moment. So I had free schooling, I had free hospitals, I went to university paying like two hundred and fifty euros per year. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and it was one of the best universities in the country. I moved here to the UK, but throughout the process of uh, me growing up, like uh, there are people who can switch code and I, I can't, like I don't have a code because I fully adjusted myself and my personality to be palatable to the places in which I lived. And mm -hmm. it's not something that I regret, it's just something that happened. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see people, how people identify me when I'm in social media, because, because people usually come, because, you know, like I live in a converted church <laughs> and people, whenever I'm I speak about- I'm obsessed with your space. So like, <laughs> I've been around this exposed beam and I'm like, ooh, I have to tell this you, looks nice. You were, the first video I saw of you, you're, you were, that was that arch behind it. And I was like, what's yeah. Cause I'm always like, I am such a creeper cause I'm always looking for something to stitch. So I'm always like in the background, I'm like, whoa, exposed beams. How old is that building? I'm obsessed with it. No, this, I just picture you going funny. like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you. I'll send you a video because I did a video of a tour here of the house because I, I I'm profoundly fortunate. Like we 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 had just got married and we were looking for a place. You know, like we were vaguely looking for something because we had uh, we were we were still on a high and we ended up buying this flat here in a converted church from. It's a church from the 19th century. It's from the same guy who designed Saint Pancras Station. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah uh, cool. and apparently it was the church that he liked the least because they didn't have a lot of budget and so they built it with really trashy local materials <laughs> which he didn't like but we love it because yeah but i love so, it you know what? it's so clearly like the commercial bricks behind you are so like 
I love them. I love that like yeah. rounded brick situation. I love it. Exactly. And they're all yellow bricks, which you know, like and the 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 the, the stone is bath stone, which is really friable and stuff. But it's a, a really it ends up being a really fascinating place to live and I'm super fortunate to 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 have this space. But but yeah, so people sometimes like when they want to criticize me, which is fine, you know, like but they usually come from for class for my class because I confuse people because my accent is sort of mid-Atlantic nasal with a hint of posh and I live in a nice place. So I immediately get told that I shouldn't be speaking about social issues because, or about racism or, you know, like how do I experience racism on a day-to-day basis, which is an, an interesting view because people think that having money and I don't have a lot of money where kind of, you know, like we both work. We're all working class, <laughs> which is something that people don't understand. You work, you're working class. That's it. You know, like the people are better off than others, but we're all working class and we all work, we're, work for a living. But it's when people want to describe it the way that you're speaking about social issues, they usually come for either your appearance or the incongruity of your accent or the, you know, like they immediately try to, especially when there are people from the extreme right, they try to narrow you down to a specific part of your intersections, ignoring all other ones. And I always find that fascinating because, I mean, we all have advantages and disadvantages and I'm very, very clear about the privilege that I have that allows me to time to read, to research, to even read a newspaper, you know, like having access, you have to pay for everything these days. I have access to subscriptions of newspapers that potentially other people don't have. So like, I'm not specifically well-informed because I'm smarter in any way. I just have access to more stuff and I have time to process that information. This is, um, so you've just touched on like my major argument yeah. on my TikTok, like against the idea of art masters, because like they're just people who had time and money and resources to like, master their craft. <laughs> yeah. anyone, anyone can do that. Like you can be an art master. Yeah. Anything's exactly. accessible like, if you have the resources. Exactly. And it's not just that. It's like everything is a question of like of the system and who the systems allows to do things. Mm-hmm. Like everything from beauty to art to writing to you need to have the time to be able to dedicate yourself to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So the and opposite, it, I also think is so interesting how when people like when I talk about abstraction, people just come for me and um, so I find it really fascinating. People so I, people are so, <laughs> I, get, I get people mad at me like week in, week out. Um, I think you're uh, I think, a real estate. It's wild. It's really amazing. I have a lot of people. I have a lot of people who hate me. But um, but that said, I find it really fascinating because what what you what's really sad is it's also class warfare, right? Like we would rather have you not think deep thoughts so you can work in the factory for longer. You know mm. that there are these things about like beauty and emotions that are better done through some sort of art, music, writing, visual, and they that the system would prefer to decrease that kind of education so mm-hmm. you can be a bigger cog in the machine. 
I actually also yes. think this is one of the major facets of diet culture. If you keep people hungry and policing each other, then they can't police a police state. Like if you keep people malnourished where they can't use the full capacity of their brains, and if they're constantly bickering over like, you're not being the right kind of vegan, no one's going to be paying attention to what's happening in a larger kind of institutional scale. That's my soapbox. <laughs> but I mean, I think also the problem we also have is that look at us. We're all from all these different places. There's a lot of information to take in. There's a lot of like we all just had three different opinions. And to me, that's one of the interesting things about TikTok. I love the variety of opinions and thoughts that come out of any one topic. Mm. For somebody who's never had the experience of consuming all of like different modes of communication and then making their own choice, it must be overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that just really fascinates me, again, from not fascinates me because when I'm living it, <laughs> it fascinates me when I look at it with uh, kind of uh, <laughs> when I step back and look at it as if I wasn't feeling the consequences of it, is how this, like, this, these institutions, these structures that we created aren't, they aren't tangible and there isn't like a mastermind behind them they're just things it's just like this huge like it's a ball that is just rolling and crushing everything in there in its path but it's kind of self-generated it's as if we had this we created a machine not a machine or a structure in which we live of, of abstractions that just rolls over us and no one has a specific control over it. So, and because we are so used to looking at problems and defining the problems as people rather than as institutions, we just, the people who understand that it's institutions are just paralyzed just by the sheer amount of work that has to be done to change even a little thing. And the people who don't look at institutions, they look at people and make them like the scene eaters of a system. Because, you know, like here in the UK, you have the UK government and you have, for instance, people like Suella Braverman, who is, she's the Home Office Secretary and she's, you know, like frankly, an, a, an abhorrent person. Like she, she, not abhorrent person because I don't know her, but her opinions are abhorrent regarding uh, women regarding minorities, regarding specifically regarding refugees. Like, she says absolutely horrendous things. And it's very easy to hate her because she's very easy to hate by the people who are her detractors. But she's only in that position because of a mix of chance and an institution that is so warped that allowed her to get to to go from an MP, a backbencher, to one of the highest offices in the land, yeah. And that's you know, like, like how how do you how do you keep this? Like how do you keep focus? How do you keep check on the person, but also at the same time realize that we are all like, despite of the fact that we are all individuals and we all have action, we are also in this massive superstructure that encompasses like geography and encompasses like culture. And like, it is, 
it is a bit overwhelming to look at all of this and think about how you could make change without mm. becoming either a rabid person always angry all the time with people or just being just frozen in front of like the institutional challenges that we have to have. So well, I feel like part of it for sorry. me is like, I'm sorry. No, you go first. I was just going to talk about British politics. Oh, I was just going to ask <laughs> you if you have a formula for kind of, you know, how you put educational content and information out there kind of into the world and finding that balance. Have you, have you found a space that you're well, kind of like living in online? Well, I mean, I like to connect things, you know, like I like to, I like to weave stuff. For instance, mm. I'll start off on an object and I'll ask questions to see what sort of things I can connect to this object. And I, I try to, I made a book that kind of changed my perspective a bit about how I not change things, but contribute. And I, I, I have it a bit as a guide, which is, there was a book, it's called uh, The Path. And it sounds super self-healthy, but it's a book by this this guy. I think it's from Harvard University. Uh, uh, he's a professor of Chinese ancient philosophy, and he like he has this idea. First, this an idea of the heart mind, which is that reason and emotion are not separate. That like we reason through emotion. Like mm. this whole separation of things doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And that and that whilst we can't do structural change, we you can do kind of like you can send ripples around into your community. Exactly. So I have my platform is, you know, like on TikTok from TikTok perspective, it's a small platform. But I just love it because I get to do that, to connect things that I think will help people ask questions mm. more than get to a solution because I don't have solutions. It's just to ask a question of how, like, how, how do we get, how did we get here? Mm. How complicated is this? Like, isn't the world really gray? Isn't the world really complicated? Yeah. Like that's, th that's the only, that's the thing that through my channel, I try to get people to, to do is just to look at the world and say, Fucking hell! This is great. This is just like <laughs> what I'm, I'm sorry for the swear word, but it's like how like okay. this is all complicated. No wonder, no wonder we got, no wonder we are in the state that we are because yeah. everything is just insane. And we don't know and how to stay in our lane and just accept it. Like <laughs> yeah. everything's kind of like not going to be accessible to us or known to us, or it's not going to be how we want it to be. Like I, I wish, and this is kind of what I want to do with my platform. Like my my wish is just for people to understand that everyone's perception is different and everyone is going to bring a different kind of perception to a moment or, you know, a piece of time or a piece of media. And that's the best part because then you get to learn and you get to exchange and understand. And like, that's a good thing. That's a, that's actually a really, really good thing. <laughs> it's the best part but, of life. Yeah. It's really amazing, but it's, um, I, I have a problem with people with, I don't have a problem. Yeah, I do. I was like, uh, <laughs> I have a problem with people who have too many certainties, mm. like too many certainties. Like there is like, 
people have too many certainties on things when everything is fluid and just like things happen by accident. Like there are a series of events that just happen by accident, you know, like because someone, you know, likes like butterfly effect or whatever like that. It's like people sometimes make, make decisions that are, that just cause changes in the world without them knowing it. And they're potentially small decisions that you can only see post hoc when you analyze it. But, you know, like we all have that, like we all have to understand that there is, like, I mean, I think that the fact that knowing that the world doesn't work, like from, um, doesn't have a clear, direct, upwards arc of history in which we are all going to get better and things are going to get better that that's not just a bad thing it's just a thing like this mm -hmm. is yeah and but there are a lot of people who ha have certainties and those people annoy me because i do think the evolutionary history thing to go back to the beginning of this conversation yeah. i find it fascinating this morning we were listening to a book i don't remember what it's called my spouse about uh women rulers in ancient egypt and we were talking about how interesting it is that ancient Egypt is seen as really important to the West where, you know, the Indus Valley civilization was pretty fancy and like, you know, Persians had some pretty good things coming on. Like, you know, there's all kinds of things, but that's what we see as sort of an apogee of things um, to kind of go back to the beginning of this. Yeah. Like we see Egypt like ourselves, right? Yeah, but, you know, like Egypt, because, you know, Egypt was colonized by the French, Egypt was colonized by the French, and then uh, you had Germans basically looking for images that reflected, for instance, the image of Nefertiti is an achievement, but there are, um, why? Why do we like Nefertiti so much? Why do we, why do we look at her and see her as, an, as, as, a, exactly. as a representative of beauty? Exactly. It's exactly. Because, yeah, it's because we can funnel it, and you can see yep. the, the, they, they can see themselves there. They can see themselves reflected on that people and they want to bask on the glory of it as well. Mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. it serves, it serves a political purpose as well. I mean, you have, uh, it's the same thing with the Roman empire. You don't have neoclassical buildings every, everywhere in the world by mistake. I mean, if you go to Trafalgar Square in London, it's just incredible how much they are trying to emulate the Roman empire. You have the Trajan's column, which is Nelson's column. You have the, Temples of Learning, which is the first one of the first kind of public museums that was available to the public, uh, a temple which is a church that has a neoclassical facade, and you had this progress in which the queen has to come from Buckingham Palace through an arc of through a triumphal arc, passing in front of the house like the statues of the heroes of colonialism, like and this is just people saying, okay, this heritage that's mine. Like the pyramids, I'm a descendant of people who were giants and made amazing That's right. things. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, I feel like to take us to the beginning of our interview, to yeah. finish it off, um, I do think that it goes back to. So good at like, there's this. I'm yeah. trying. Um, but like, I think that like you, you, you know, you talk about archaeology and like your field and then how people have this sort of misconception of people of the past. I think to me, one of the things I really love about your videos is 
they remind us of those misconceptions. Even if you're not talking about archaeology, you remind us that there are misconceptions that we should confront. And I love that. I love the idea Thank that you. I need to learn more. Me too. And I think that it's a huge part of why TikTok is so good. Yeah, I agree. That's another theme of our conversations. Australia's giant. Australia and Canada are massive and people just like don't realize that they're massive. They are. The first time that I went to Canada, like even in the United States, because, you know, like I live in Europe and we've been over occupied for thousands of years. So, you know, like there's sometimes there's crappy public transportation, but nothing of the scale of the massiveness of everything. Like the roads are massive. The trees are massive. Everything. And there are spaces that haven't been touched, which is something that just blows my mind. A space in which humans haven't kind of destroyed over and over and over and over there's again. Like no, it's crazy. Like Quebec. Park. Yeah, there's a secret national park in Australia. I don't know where it is. No one knows where it is because it has all of these kind of endangered, really, really, really old, almost prehistoric plants like really, really, really old and really incredibly like niche biological species. And it's this protected space that no one's allowed to go to because it's That's amazing. I know. I know. I like, I wish that I could just kind of see it from a distance one day, but <laughs> I love, I love knowing it's there. And I love knowing that at least, at least like one part of Australia, people like just, just back off, mate, just leave it as it is. <laughs> Have you read that book, the Kaiju Protection society no it's a sci-fi book from this year and um it's about i don't know if it's called kaiju they're those like they're basically like Godzilla, some sort of yeah. some sort of creature from movies and it the book's premise is that it's real these pla these animals are real and that you have to go to like you have to take some sort of transportation device to their basically they opened up a because they had to preserve preserve all these animals in these like places like that <laughs> so they created like another dimension they're basically in another dimension that you can go to from like greenland or something but it kind of talks about how the only way to save these unspoiled places is to ignore like basically not tell anybody where they are mm -hmm. No, uh, that's really the only way you could do that's it. Kind of what you actually yeah. have to do, though, because people are like, oh, but it's an Instagram opportunity. So. <laughs> well, please, please don't. Years ago, oh my I God. Was, we have been to. <laughs> Too real. I think it's also the scale of it. Like, I think about, like, years and years ago, when I was a little girl, my teacher told me, if you ever hear of a super bloom in the desert, go to it. And we were in California. We have a lot of family in California. So we happen to be there. And so we, we start driving towards like like Joshua Tree, so Southern California. Um, I work with people from California. I just realized that maybe these are not places that you can picture. But um, mm -hmm. so you drive through the high desert. There's a high desert in Southern California. And so you go from like LA, you know, and like we were on the, we were on the ocean side of LA, all the way across over LA into the high desert towards um, like, you know, like th towards um, Arizona. And um, so we're like real excited because, but then we get there and then every other person in LA is there with us apparently, <laughs> like just all the people, right? Like we're like, oh shoot. And it's not like, you know, the Mojave and like Joshua Tree, those are not easy places to get to. And like you get, there's all these signs that say high altitude, uh, expect like uh, dizziness, you know? And um, we get to the park, they're all national parks. 
And they're all saying, do not step on our national flower, on our state flower, because it was the poppy super bloom, for example. And all these people were Instagramming and going, basically destroying the thing they came to see. Yeah, of course. Right? Like, it's just crazy. It's it's really insane. Like I the, the 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 worst thing that I've ever seen people do in Instagram was when I was in Berlin. In uh, the in the memorial. Yeah. Like you had people making pouty faces and taking sexy yep. photos in the middle of the memorial. And I was just like I mean, really <laughs> It's It's a huge topic in the field, actually, of in museum studies and historical preservation, because like I was once at a conference with um, people from the Oklahoma City bombing. So there was a bombing here, like a white nationalist many, many years ago. Right. And a lot of people who died were children. So the monument to it is also to these poor children who were just like at daycare. Right. Um, But so the one of the things that comes up in these conversations, though, is for these these sites how do you help people rather than police people yeah because it's a very hard line no it's very it's very complicated especially when it's sites that commemorate like one of the one of the 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 the, the places in london that i have the most difficulties with is the imperial war museum because when you go to the imperial war museum they have a, a section regarding the holocaust which is harrowing as it should be but there's a section of it that i just cannot deal with it's two pictures blown up of women running and their clothing has obviously been ripped off them and it there's the either the assault has just happened or the assault is about to happen and they have these pictures there and my question is why these women are long dead why does the only image that is left of these women in the world is of their worst, potentially the worst moment in their lives. Why? Why do we have this? And the, because it's like, oh, yes, because we need to understand, we need to learn. It's like, this is voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. This, is, yeah. this doesn't take into account the dignity of these people because they are people. Like, But they're not, I mean, in history, that's the problem with history, right? They make them not people. I worked with this artist on this installation. Um, His name is Terrence Hammond. He's an Ohio-based, he's from Cincinnati. And um, he was, he's a printmaker. And um, he does, he's a printmaker, and he, but he prints on really interesting things. So he does whole room installations, like he prints on wallpaper or ceramics. And he said that one of the things he realized as a black man, so he's a, He's a black man from Ohio. The Cleveland and Cincinnati are both majority black cities. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, like he, Cincinnati and Cleveland, while different, are very similar. They're, they were both started in the 1790s. It's, it's been, largely, you know, lots of immigrants, black people, certainly for our whole lives, but for, you know, century, for decades. And so he had seen lots of images of blackness in his life. But in the news, all he saw was his, people who were objects of his, sorry, Objects of history, not people. Hmm. And so he decided that his art should, ca- like, in some ways counteract that. He didn't want to play into that. And it came around, like, in the States, seeing, like, George Floyd and, you know, like, hmm. um, he, wanted to, he wanted to change the narrative. And so he started creating these images that are so extraordinary, like um, Jesse Owens is an Ohioan who, um, hmm. who, you know, won the gold 
in Berlin yeah. under Hitler, right? And so he um, he wanted to show these images, or he did this whole series of wallpaper that looks a little, it like looks a little bit apparently like the wallpaper that you see in the movie of Gone with the Wind. So not like historical, but like yeah. a Hollywood rendition of history. Yeah. But instead of, um, and those images had like valorized, you know, people in the middle of these rondelles, it was yeah. hip hop heroes. And yeah, so we installed I mean, it 22 feet up and we, people would walk by and they're like, wait, is that flame a flame? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that's some of the, some of the, something that I tried to do with my art as well. Because I was speaking with Joris Lushen. He's another, he's a very, like, a really good TikToker. I love his account. I love yeah. his account. He, he's amazing. And he lives in London. We're mates. So he's just really incredible. And he asked me, for just because when I paint, I paint a lot of, like, my figures are always a bit, they're sensual rather than sexy. But there's always a hint of desire in the things that I paint. And when I say desire, I don't mean exactly, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical attractiveness, it's yearning. And he was saying, but why do you not have any, why do you not have any black models just represented as objects of beauty? And all of the black models that I have, all of the paintings of black people that I do, they are always of larger than life, larger than life figures because i'm tired i'm tired of seeing black people represented throughout history as supplicants as objects as i want to see like one of them i'm working on a work uh, um a piece now called persephone uh and it's uh a male black model that has been made up by his girlfriend to look like a woman but he's embodying the idea of Persephone coming out of the coming out of um, hell in spring of Hades in spring, you know, covered in flowers and so on and so forth. I did another one, which is a kind of a a mythological creature, but like a uh, a representation of Adam, but based in the Byzantine world, which I kind of surround with jewelry and represent as kind of a. a an altar in a Byzantine church, because I want to be able to see that. I want to be able to see the images that you see, for instance, when you go to a Kahinde Wiley exhibition, which is like, I don't know, like if you, like his images are just so overwhelming for me because the the fact that he represented represents them in, in the setting, in the glorious setting of Baroque painting, it just has, has an impact on me that I never thought it would. There was this mm-hmm. amazing installation mm-hmm. in the um, in the National Gallery, and I know I'm going off on a tangent. Apologies. I know that okay. we finished the interview, but there is this there was this installation that was in the National Gallery, and I found one of the most beautiful and touching things that I've ever seen in my life because it was the first time that I saw a piece of art that was made for me. It wasn't made for my husband. <laughs> it wasn't made for the majority of the white people who attended this, this exhibition, it was made for people of color. So basically it was, you'd go into a room and it was surrounded by screens all around. And you had these majestically beautiful black people of all ages, all sizes, but dressed in very intricate clothing um, with amazing braiding and, you know, colorful- uh, That's awesome. Embroidery. Like, was this Yinka Shinabari? Hmm? Was the artist was the artist Yinka Shonabari? 
No, no, it was uh, Kehinde Wiley. Oh, it was Kehinde Wiley. Yeah, and it has, and they were sitting in a massive plain of snow. Like, Mm. everything was snow around them. And I think it must have been recorded in a fjord or in Iceland or something Mm. of the sort, because you had this pristine, beautiful, like... I know the word. And and you would only see these people going around, being filmed in different perspectives, and some of them smiling. And all of them had a rictus smile because some of it was cold. And it's just like, it hit me. It hit me so much to see a black figure in the middle of a sea of whiteness forcing a smile because that's the thing that you need yeah. to do. Yeah, and that's right. I was, and I was Fast, sitting there, yeah. and I was explaining it to my husband because my husband was like, "Oh, this is pretty," and I was like, "This is not just pretty. Let me let me walk you through this." Mm-hmm. And it was such a privilege to be in a place in which, like, I felt catered to, mm-hmm. like as mm-hmm. a viewer and as an yeah. artist. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> But it's hard, you know. It's, but it's hard. Like, exactly. I know that we, Sophie, and, Sophie and I. I'm, I'm, I'm counting the time, Sophie. Uh, so we have like six oh, I'm minutes. We have the next. We have one more interview. No, no, no. no, no, no that was interview. an amazing joke. <laughs> Sorry, please include that because that's amazing. We like a we like a bad it's joke. True. Welcome. No, but it, do you, do you, are you loving proximity to whiteness? Isn't it fun? Oh Jesus. <laughs> I could but, tell these stories in another time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll have to have you back. I'm, I'm kind thing. of thinking that we'll, we we'll have to have like secondary episodes that are our interview episodes. I know. Or we could cut it into it. We'll figure it out. We're going to figure it out later. Okay. So, Sophie and I, we started to work on this and I was like, we need to pay attention. But I will say that. I know, so I know that that. So the, the so for me, one of the things that's really hard from the other side of this is not an art maker, but somebody who looks at installations like I know that the Kendall Wiley show came that work was not part of it but it came to Ohio and I was working I knew a lot of people who worked on that show and I had worked on I've worked on a lot of things where Kendall Wiley's been involved or you know like with artworks within it and um the thing for me that I find very frustrating is when they use basically Kendall Wiley like they talked about you right you were the succeeder mm-hmm. and Kendall Wiley followed the right rules he went to Yale and he did it it's always because Yale. I, it's yeah. always Yale, but like I've done a number of, like I did the last, I, part of the reason I left museums is because my director was like, can you please count how many um, black people, gay people, blah, 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 were in the shows that you curated this year? And I was like, well, I think of them as human. And like the way you curate a show ideally isn't based on like the race, unless it's like that show that you took your friend to like, you know, unless it's a show literally about blackness or whiteness or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. It's usually a show like the show that I did, for example, that Terrace Hammond was in was about um, contemporary craft. So mm-hmm. and I, I said, you know, what what makes me upset is that this is the most diverse show you've ever shown as an institution. And I did it because I wasn't focused on diversity. I was focused on content. Now, I you picked a person who is looking for people who look like me in any way, say, perform. So it doesn't have to be like, they could be, you know, a variety of mm. things. And I will say that I, when we opened the show, I had a million, so many people say kind of the same thing you said. There's a woman named Renluka Maharaj. She's ethnically, mm. she's ethnically Indian, but her family was uh, indentured servants in Trinidad. And she makes works where she takes photographs because they don't have any family history. 
um, mm-hmm. because one, you know, you like lost your story once you left India because there, there was a lot of reasons for that. And then there was no money for photographs. So she makes basically family histories of Trinidadians that don't exist. Another was a Ghanaian artist who wants to show positive images of women, uh, whose name is Rafai Zakari. And so like, I w- these were all these artists. One of them was a, a really interesting weaver named Trey Gehring, who's from like rural Ohio, which to me, I have to say, we always joke about this. Rural Ohio is more foreign to me than like Mexico City. I would never go to rural <laughs> Ohio. They do not want me. They like, this is like the, they would be like, they don't want me there. So he, but he's a, so he's a queer man who grew up in rural Ohio. And so for him, a lot of his sexuality was created through his visions of social media. Like as a young guy. So he he grew up with, and he's like, it wasn't a very healthy way. (laughs) You know, like, so he does these amazing, beautiful weavings. My point is that for the person who curated that in the Wiley show, and I don't know that one, but I know the one that was the US stateside version of that. A lot of times they're not looking to give you what you want. They're giving you what they think you want. Yeah. Yeah. Which is It's a real problem. Yeah, it is because yeah, it's because you have all of the same decision makers. It's the same yes, people who exactly. do the lists, who do the year lists. Have you noticed exactly. in the Guardian, the people who do the yes. cultural lists in the Guardian just get on my nerves. And then the I mean, nepotism all good people, babies but... who take their place exactly. afterwards. <laughs> oh. And who say, Oh no, this is good and this is bad. It's like who 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 made you king? <laughs> who gave really, you the power to make the decisions? Uh, we were talking about this in the episode that we just released, where it's kind of like once you once you've been in the art world long enough, it's kind of phonetically sealed, and then you you basically have access to insider trading, and like you kind of yeah. know what's going to be popular, or you can kind of decide what's going to be popular because you know, and you can decide where the money goes, and then like where does that it's leave very, room for actual kind of natural you know growth for art as yeah. a cultural kind of lexicon for us to engage in but also like as individual artists no it's very true all right we have to meet again and talk <laughs> okay but we sophie and i have to leave because we have to process this video yeah, it's been awesome it's so awesome yeah, this was amazing it's thank so you awesome. so much for having me over oh uh, we should maybe I, I we could also in the future meet like this but on tiktok live so that we can announce yeah. it whenever we make yeah, the podcast yeah, yeah. yeah of course um, of course yeah and thank you and for being have, happy to have to get thank you very much I for know. having me and i have to get to get your tag so that i can follow you oh i already oh, yeah. followed She's, you so it's you right can here find me. don't worry oh yeah and it's in my, and it's it's in in my her zoom thing. name it's in my zoom name because this is my i have she zoom. she picked a word i don't know why she picked a word that i can't say i Barman? picked a word <laughs> Varmint. It's like, a, it's like a southern accent. If you say vermin. it with a southern accent, it sounds like vermin. And of course, I like to choose like weird, old, obscure things that match the historical she's a, processes she does that I do. And amber types. That's yeah. her historic process. She's a historic process. I make, I make falsified. Brilliant. Yeah, I make falsified yeah. archives of queer bodies through history because, like, yeah. real. Art. <laughs> it's if you're ever amazing. in New York, so you like, have come to for a portrait. You have to come for TikTok, a portrait. TikTok also hates. Her. They, yeah, I have so many me. sensitive yeah, warnings. I'm always like, who am I? Because it's in my follow feed. I'm like, who am I following? And then I look and I'm like, this isn't sensitive. It's, it's so just, funny. It's just me doing the shit with fake blood in a studio. Um, but it's it's all kind of like, <laughs> um, I would say, and I. I do. I feel like I've kind of earned the right to be obnoxious about this. Now, but like, you will never see a tintype like mine. 
they are yeah. they're a little bit they're a little bit odd i have this ability to really make you think you're looking at history when you're not looking at history um and they're beautiful they're beautiful Amazing. all right we have to go okay have, i have to be bye. The- bye happy everybody new year. happy new year, happy new year. <laughs> bye <laughs> If you'd like to support the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts. We also have a Patreon under the same name. If you have topic suggestions, feedback, sponsorship offers, or just want to say hi, you can email us at artlastpodcast at gmail.com. Follow Seema at Artlast and Sophie at Darkroom Varmint, V-A-R-M-I-N-T. We'll see you next time.